0: Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now here's our show.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. Now, I don't really know when this is going to be released, but this is actually the first podcast of January 2023 fist pump. And if you forgot already, what is the Dr. Raj podcast about? It's about happiness and wellness and amazing stories. And yes, somewhere in there, there is medical education, right? I'm gonna drop some medical pearls from time to time. So what is the theme of this podcast? Osteoporosis. You know, people have it. Men have it. It's a podcast for every single person out there. So I got this catchy title of this podcast. Here's the theme, everyone. Uh, Pay attention a little bit. It's gonna be you already carry the diagnosis. So on your follow up visit, what are 10 questions to ask your doctor about osteoporosis? And who's going to be my guest today? Well, we got a returning guest. We got my favorite, that is favorite, endocrinologist in todos los mundo. I think that means the whole world. I think it does, you know. And it's going to be Dr. Braden Barnett. He already did stuff for me about diabetes. And I kind of, I didn't have to Did I have to twist your arm? Not at all. No twisting, no twisting. twisting, But he's going to come back here and and talk about osteoporosis. And um, I just want to say a few things beyond him just being my bud and awesome. He's the assistant clinical professor at University of Southern California, USC, go Trojans. He's also the associate program director of the Endocrinology Fellowship, and he is the co-director of the USC Endocrine Lab. And I said, why are you doing that? But anyways and how are you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Happy New Year, Dr. Rush. Thank you. Thank you. So some people still don't know what osteoporosis is. Nope, no worries, because we have you here. So can you just find out what is osteoporosis?
2: Yeah. So when I uh, when I see a patient for a, a first-time consult about osteoporosis, the thing that I that I try to stress to my patients is that It's, it might be easiest to not think of osteoporosis as a condition as like a yes or no binary kind of a thing. What I say uh, to my patients and the way I explain osteoporosis Mm -hmm. is it's basically synonymous with trying to identify people who are at high risk. Of having a fracture, and and the types of fractures we're talking about are are what some people call fragility fractures, osteoporotic fractures, uh, low trauma or even no trauma fractures. These are the types of fractures that we're talking about. We're not talking about high impact fractures. Um, oh, okay. We're not talking about you know the fracture you get from being in a car accident. We're not talking about. The fracture you get from running into a tree on a pair of skis, or something like that, um, or, or Jean Claude Van Damme snapping your arm in a karate exactly. move, or something exactly. Like that. Okay. You <laughs> got to watch out for JCBD. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, so those are fractures that generally mm-hmm. no medical intervention is going to prevent those. Okay. So that's why we're not. Talking about those fractures, we're talking about fractures that occur with a very small amount or even no trauma, because those are fractures that we think medical intervention might actually be able to decrease the risk of those fractures. So when we talk about osteoporosis, Mm -hmm. we are trying to find a group of people who we think have met some arbitrary threshold of a higher risk of fracture. And we're trying to say, okay, this group might
1: benefit from medical intervention. Ooh, I like that. A lot. So are there symptoms if you have osteoporosis? Now, I always thought it was a air quote, silent disease, because how do you feel my bones getting thin? I just don't know that. So Is it a painful osteoporosis? Are there any symptoms to look for? Well, your intuition is correct, uh, Dr. Raj, (laughs) that osteoporosis
2: is an asymptomatic condition, right? Because like I said, all we're trying to do is risk stratify people. There's not clinical manifestations that we're looking for here with the exception of broken bones, right? (laughs) Yeah, you might feel that. Right. And that gets to probably the most important risk factor and Mm. and making a diagnosis, and I will get more into it later, Mm. I know. But just to start with probably the most important risk factor and diagnostic criteria is if someone has already had an osteoporotic fragility, low trauma, or atraumatic fracture, we know that then there is something innate about that person that then puts them at risk of having a future fracture, right? Ah, Um, So that is diagnostic criteria number one, is if someone has already had a fragility fracture in the past, we know that they are at a high risk of having a fragility fracture in the future. Now, so then could you argue that, sure, it is a fracture, a symptom of osteoporosis, I mean, it kind of depends on your definition, yeah. um, because like I said, osteoporosis is not really a a disease per se. It's really just trying to risk stratify people. So to answer your question, Mm -hmm, you know, shortly and succinctly, no, there are no symptoms with osteoporosis. A lot of times I have patients who say, oh, well, yeah, you know, it made sense when my doctor told me that I had osteoporosis in my hip or osteoporosis in my spine based on a bone density test, because yeah, I do have a lot of hip pain or yeah, I do have a lot of, of, spine pain back pain um, and so to those people I say well that is more likely due to a degenerative joint disease of some kind, you know, osteoarthritis or, you know, various different causes of low back pain and not due to a fracture, right? Mm-hmm. So unless you got mm-hmm. an x-ray of your hip and oh my gosh, you have a hip fracture and, or you did an x-ray of your spine and you have a spine fracture, that would not be a manifestation of osteoporosis. That more likely would be a manifestation of osteoarthritis, which is very confusing for yes. patients who have both osteoporosis and osteoarthritis, which happen very commonly together. and sound very similar <laughs> to the lay person um, for sure. So, well um, so yeah, no
1: symptoms. So let's go into who gets it. Does ethnicity play a role, family history play a role. And one I want to be a little more passionate about is what about us? We're dudes. We're men. Right. Now I'm going to tell you, every time I hear is a med school, if there's a picture in some kind of textbook, it's a woman, mm-hmm. right? Do men get it too? And, so who gets osteoporosis?
2: So yeah, um, I, I guess to answer that question, I'll start by sort of giving a brief dive into physiology here. Not nothing mm-hmm. too deep, but um, if you think about our bones as having two different kinds of cells, right? We've got the osteoblasts, which think of them as like the construction crew, right? Okay. And we've got the osteoclasts, think of them as like the demolition crew, right? Okay. So when we are young, when we're kids, when we're going through childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, mm-hmm. the construction crew is working really hard, right? Yep. So imagine you're starting with an empty plot of land and you're trying to build a building there. You need the construction crew working really hard. You don't really need much of a demolition crew at that point, right? Yeah. So our osteoblasts, our construction crew, they're building, building, building. So when we're young, our bone density is going up nearly every day, right? Okay. And we're very unlikely to have um, fragility fractures during that time period, right? Of course. Kids break bones all the time, but yeah. they're usually high impact fractures. Exactly. Um, and they heal up usually very easily because mm-hmm. the construction crew's working hard, they can fill in the gaps real easy, right? right? right in early adulthood, uh, around the age of about 30 or so, is where our bone density reaches a peak. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, that's where our our construction crew has kind of slowed down a little bit. Our demolition crew has kind of sped up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now they're kind of in a nice equilibrium. Okay. So Uh our bone density is kind of plateaued for a little while. Okay. After that, in the early adulthood, you know, getting into into middle adulthood, 30s, 40s, this is where our bone density is stable and then maybe starts to decline a little Mm -hmm. bit. Now, this is due to sort of just a natural function of the human body mm-hmm. where the demolition crew starts speeding up, right? So now the demolition crew, those osteoclasts, mm-hmm. they're going a little bit faster than the osteoblast, the construction crew. So the net effect is a loss of bone. So now the reason I bring this up is this gets me to why is osteoporosis so much more strongly associated with women than with men? Okay. Um, when women go through menopause and their estrogen levels go from the sort of standard levels we see in pre-menopause, women to lower levels during perimenopause, down to the very low levels of a a postmenopausal woman. This is where we start to see that the osteoclast, the demolition team, they start speeding up even more. And the reason for this is that estrogen is a very potent inhibitor of the demolition team. So if you get rid of estrogen, now you're taking the breaks off of the demolition team off of the osteoclast, they're starting to chew away at that bone even faster. And so during the first 10 years mm-hmm. after the completion of menopause, which average age of menopause, uh, uh is around 50, 51. Mm-hmm. So for the average woman, we're talking basically through the fifties, mm-hmm. uh, the decade of the fifties into the early sixties, mm-hmm. this is where women tend to see the most profound loss of bone density. Now actually the risk of fracture during this time is actually not Super high. Okay? okay. Um, so even though the bone density is going down fairly rapidly during this time, the risk of fracture remains relatively low. Then as women progress into their, their sixties, seventies, eighties and beyond, mm-hmm. um, this is where we start to see the risk of fracture go up because we know that age plays a big role as well. Okay? okay. So we know that the loss of bone density that occurs in the postmenopausal woman plays a role. And that's why we tend to see, um, at least later on, higher risks of fracture mm-hmm. in women as compared to men. But we know that age plays a role in both women and men. So mm-hmm. we know um, that that older individuals tend to have a higher risk of fracture than younger younger individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why we don't really talk about uh, osteoporosis and bone density and all those things in premenopausal women and and younger men, which mm-hmm. we'll say is below the age of about fifty or so.
1: You know, we talked about estrogen, the mm-hmm. hormone. And, you know, men. I have a little estrogen. I don't know what to sure, do with right, it, right, right. somewhere in me. Now, does the same concept apply with my testosterone level? Now? osteoporosis in men you yes know what I
2: mean? so um, a man that is hypogonadal deficient in testosterone yeah. would be presumed to have uh lower bone density on average than a man who
1: doesn't have low testosterone and then also probably a higher fracture risk as well is it the same science like i love talking about a demolition crew yeah yeah, so yeah. is my testosterone preventing my demolition crew from Breaking down my bone just like in women? Correct. You, you're you correct. So the okay. idea is that in men, we mm. have uh, a lot more testosterone than,
2: than estrogen. Okay. Um, but we do have some estrogen, and it's all derived from our testosterone. Okay. So if you if you have less testosterone, then you also have less estrogen. The testosterone mm. itself doesn't have much of a direct impact on the bone. It's the, <gasps> gotcha. it's the estrogen
1: that is derived from the testosterone that so has So to, to make it simple, because now I'm getting really into this, so that's one of the many reasons in a simple answer that maybe osteoporosis is a little more pronounced in women's because the role of estrogen in men is not as big, but it still contributes to bone loss when I lose that estrogen as I get older. But in women, that's a huge thing because that is the primary hormone in Cor- women. Correct. Correct. Okay. And another
2: thing to to point out there mm-hmm. is that every person on, on the planet who has ovaries will go through menopause at, at some point during okay. their life. Right. Yep. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, roughly half the population who eventually is going to have very low estrogen levels. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, and even, uh, women who go on. Hormone replacement therapy mm-hmm. um, with estrogen. We know that even in those individuals, we still see less sort of estrogen activity in the bone and we still get a little bit of bone loss there. But, um, but <laughs> the point I'm bringing up here yeah. is that most men, yeah. while we do see lower testosterone levels later yeah. in life in many uh-huh. men, uh-huh. the testosterone levels don't drop to zero, right? Okay. With the very low levels seen yeah. in a postmenopausal woman, oh, there, yeah. there is not a significant, uh, andropause if you will if you will where where men's testosterone levels drop down to like near zero
1: right well
2: i'm uh, gonna tell you i watched some
1: late night commercials yeah yeah uh, they they may contradict you because sure. there's like low T and they're making a lot of money selling some testosterone, right. <laughs> and, and that's uh, that's a whole other discussion and for another day. But but the general idea is that uh, that yes, even
2: though you know <laughs> testosterone levels tend to be lower in older men as compared to younger men in yeah. general, yeah. Yeah. the testosterone levels don't drop. So much to the okay. point um, okay. that that they're comparable
1: to the estrogen, the very
2: low to zero estrogen levels in a woman. That
1: makes sense. And, yeah. and just, and just uh, yes or no? Does family history play a role in osteoporosis and ethnicity? Uh, family history,
2: absolutely. Um, okay. So we know that you know a lot of what I talked about, how you know the the demolition crew, the osteoclast, they kind of just start speeding up as time goes on. Um, the lack of estrogen is only one component there. A lot of The rest of these components are sort of things that are just innate to the human body and and Mm -hmm. things that that are dependent on factors that we are probably yet to discover. Mm -hmm. But we know that a lot of that is genetically driven as well. A Mm -hmm. lot of it is hardwired in our DNA. And so we know that people who have parents who had uh, fractures, fragility fractures, in particular hip fractures, that their children are at a higher risk of having hip fractures as well. So a parent who uh, had a hip fracture, a, a fragility fracture in the hip is a major risk factor for um, having an osteoporotic fracture later in life. So family history mm-hmm. most definitely plays a role, and we assume that's just because that there's innate DNA features that uh, that we don't really know how to how to look for
1: or how to yeah, define. Yeah. Um, does ethnicity play a role? Well, yeah. Let me answer oh, this yeah, Let yeah, me yeah, answer up. it, please. I'm going to guess, because poor African Americans always get it bad. Is it African Americans, because I'm guessing vitamin D levels? Did I just totally guess wrong? Uh, you guessed a little bit lo- wrong
2: actually oh, on that man. one. Um, oh okay. man. Inform so, uh, me, inform uh, me. Uh, uh, people of uh, Asian descent and Asian Caucasian descent. descent actually tend to have higher risks of fractures um, as no compared kidding. to those of African-American really? descent. Really? Um, okay. Not to say that you know people of African-American descent don't get osteoporosis and yep. don't have osteoporotic fractures, okay. but in general, Caucasian descent and Asian descent are the people who are at a higher risk of developing osteoporosis,
1: however you define that yeah. and and uh, a higher risk of fractures have you met my mom uh yes i have she has osteoporosis yes yeah so anyways just uh, yeah maybe i could test <laughs> asian what was he thinking um i want to throw just a couple quick things in here and uh, just off the cuff sure so for my medical students i'm sure there's a couple listening to this one i'm almost think i'm gonna put this one on my medical podcast too Great. um if you're a young kid and you're getting some fractures you know mm-hmm. what jumps to mind medical students something called osteogenesis imperfecta right and for my movie buffs out there does anyone know what villain in a m night Shyamalan movie had osteogenesis imperfecta well that was something that they call unbreakable and i know the villain there was right. called, like samuel jackson right he right, had a right. the classic like blue sclera and he yes. was breaking bones when he was young so right. It's amazing how something as dorky as this translates to movies <laughs> you and go. good yeah. health. But um, anyways, what, what medical conditions puts anyone at risk for osteoporosis? Anything that jumps to mind? Well, so we can start with osteogenesis
2: imperfecta that you brought up. So um, so that is listed as you know a condition that that contributes to a higher risk of fracture mm-hmm. across the spectrum of, of life. Yeah. Um, osteogenesis imperfecta is typically diagnosed in childhood, um, but we know that then those individuals continue to have a higher risk of fracture into adulthood. So anyone who has an established diagnosis of osteogenesis imperfecta, we know that that person is at a higher risk of having. Fractures later on, and so um, you might have
1: a lower threshold to start medical therapy on. And maybe that's why I put African Americans. Uh, True, true. Because I was thinking of Samuel Jackson. Could be great, great actor. You know what I mean? Okay, okay. Well, what's a Um, common thing? Because you know that's not a common thing. That's not common. Okay. Um, so uh, obviously,
2: uh, uh, I mean, this isn't a medical condition, but yep. postmenopausal women. Okay. Um, and in men, men who have an established diagnosis of low T, low okay. testosterone, gotcha. hypogonadism. Okay. Um, we know that chronic liver disease is associated okay. with uh, an increased risk of fracture. Um, we know that chronic kidney disease as well and renal disease. I could buy so, that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Low, low vitamin D and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Um, primary hyperparathyroidism, we know, is also associated with bone loss and an increased risk of fracture. Fracture. And
1: parathyroids, for the non-medical out there, really regulates calcium, right? One of the big players mm-hmm. when we talk about bone health. Right, right.
2: And uncontrolled uh, chronic hyperthyroidism as well. Oh, so thyroid. Yep, yep. So high uh, thyroid levels, uncontrolled chronic hyperthyroidism leads to increased bone turnover and increased activity with the osteoclasts as well. So, nice. um, Okay. So they tend to have lower bone density and, uh, and a higher risk of fracture as well. So how do you diagnose osteoporosis? So, there's two different ways to diagnose someone with osteoporosis, and then a third way or a third avenue by which someone might qualify for osteoporotic treatment. And so, you know, okay. you could say maybe that is a diagnosis of osteoporosis, or sure. you're just saying you're treating those people with the medication. So, mm-hmm. the first way, like I said uh, earlier, is a clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis, and that would be. Mm-hmm. In anybody who has suffered an osteoporotic fracture already. So someone who has had a fragility fracture in the past someone who comes in with Mm a hip fracture or a spine fracture. um, Those are probably the two most common areas, but um, you could also see osteoporotic or fragility fractures in the, uh, the wrist, the distal forearm, Mm -hmm. the proximal humerus near the shoulder Mm -hmm. um, and the ribs. Those would be kind of the most common areas. If someone has already had a fragility fracture in that area, Mm -hmm. it actually does not matter what their bone density is. That person has a, clinical diagnosis of osteoporosis. And that person most likely would benefit from medication going forward to try and
1: reduce so their let risk. Me, God, you get me so fired up all the time. So is that in real medicine, clinical medicine, how many endocrinologists, primary care, rheumatologists will accept a clinical diagnosis in the sense that will that cover medications based on the clinical diagnosis? Or do you really have to go on and get that DEXA, which we're gonna be talking about soon.
2: From a practical standpoint, um, most of those patients still should get a DEXA, not only because as you alluded to, there might be insurance requirements where to get certain medications, the insurance company might Mm -hmm. say. I understand your diagnosis of clinical osteoporosis, but we are still going to require a bone density test to Mm -hmm. see where the bone density is. But then also from a practical standpoint and a management standpoint going forward, um, we use the bone density for better or for worse, we use the bone density as our our marker of treatment therapy uh, for for a lot of patients. We use changes in bone density. So is that um, number
1: two? Is that the second way to do correct, it? Then? Correct.
2: Correct. Okay. But um, but yes, uh, we we would use changes in bone density to determine is a treatment being effective or not to some extent. So you'd want to get a baseline in those patients. Even if you've decided I'm going to treat this patient no matter what the bone density shows, you're still probably going to get that bone density test
1: so that you have your baseline. And bone density, you know, just is basically looking at the the bone in three main areas, right? There's hip, mm-hmm. there's wrist, mm-hmm. And where's the other one the lumbar spine lumbar spine those are the three areas a lot that we really focus on is that correct
2: and those are the three areas that we focus on um one because yes they are common areas to Mm -hmm. see osteoporotic fractures Mm -hmm. but more importantly just those are the areas that have been validated as correlating with fracture risk right that that there is this relationship that the lower your bone density in those three areas generally speaking, the higher your risk of fracture.
1: And that would be the air quote gold standard is, is the DEXA.
2: The A, a DEXA using yeah, a, a two-dimensional dual uh, X-ray absorptiometry DEXA scan is the standard. You know, is it going to be the standard forever? Maybe not. There might be something that will replace it because mm-hmm. um, there certainly are limitations that come with it. But certainly in uh, research studies and in
1: mm-hmm. clinical practice, DEXA is
2: sort of uh, what, what we're using.
1: Now... You alluded to a third way, mm-hmm. and I don't even know what third way is. So <laughs> I gotta hear it from the horse's mouth. What is the third way to diagnose? So the so so the second way, just to yeah, close <laughs> up the gap
2: there, is you know if yeah. you get the Dexa and you fall below this arbitrary threshold of your bone density in one of the areas that's measured, mm-hmm. then we would assume that if your bone density is low enough, your risk of fracture is high enough, that therefore you would benefit from medication. Mm-hmm. So the third way is basically if you say, well, I got the, the patient's never had an osteoporotic fracture yet, mm-hmm. um, and I want to prevent them from ever having a fracture if their mm-hmm. risk is high enough, mm-hmm. their bone density hasn't met this Threshold to classify them as high risk for fracture based purely on their bone density. Mm. Um, That's number two. Number three would be, what if there are other factors Mm. at play? Um, Sort of the things you were alluding to, family history, ethnicity, one factor I alluded to earlier, which is age. What if you take other factors into consideration and that either with or without bone density, what if you then calculated a risk of fracture? And if you determine that their risk of fracture is above a certain threshold, um, then you might say, well, even though their bone density doesn't reach the threshold, when I take into consideration these other factors, it increases my suspicion or or my estimated risk for them to have a fracture in the future. And so I do think this patient would benefit from pharmacotherapy, from drug therapy.
1: Okay. Um, I see where this is going. So I was assuming mm -hmm. that you were talking about a blood test or a urine test or something like that, you're, you're referring to a, a calculated score, and I believe you're talking about the FRAX. So yeah, more
2: generally, I'm referring to any risk assessment model. Um, There's multiple different risk assessment models that have been constructed and and calculated out there for this purpose. Um, In the United States, at least, and in in many countries around the world, the uh, risk assessment model
1: that is used most frequently is, as you said, the FRAX tool. Yes. Now, you know what? I mean, I just made this up, I mean, my my wife, who's a rheumatologist, one time got a consult does someone order some blood work about mm-hmm. osteoporosis? And, you know, we both kind of shook our heads a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is there any blood work that people commonly order for osteoporosis out there? Or is that something that's kind of, you know, maybe it's still in the more research phase? You know what I mean? Anything yeah. like that? So uh, I think from a an assessment
2: of osteoporosis standpoint, yeah. so there's definitely some lab testing that should be ordered in every patient that you are, diagnosing with osteoporosis Mm -hmm. or that you are saying oh this person is high risk for fracture either because they've already had a fracture or because their bone density is low Mm -hmm. or because using a risk assessment Mm -hmm. model their Mm -hmm. risk of fracture is high you should do some blood testing to look for reversible causes things that you could that you could intervene and these are are secondary causes of either bone loss and or
1: increased risk of fracture that you could uh, fix that you could do something so like, like right? a thyroid and parathyroid but what about a bone is there a bone marker of osteoporosis out there so yeah yeah you're referring to to markers of bone turnover yeah, does the, anyone Bone, order bone those? turnover
2: markers btms um btms it yeah, so, sounds like i will order it from a deli or something yeah, i know yeah <laughs> delicious so yeah. um so uh yeah. yes there are people who order them and and they're so you order them uh in some patients really yes. what um, are some
1: i'm just do you do them in the pre-diagnosis phase or during the treatment phase? I think probably the best
2: uh, proposed uh, use of these bone turnover mm-hmm. markers is to help with monitoring of treatment or okay. monitoring of efficacy of certain types of treatments. Um, so there's there's two different uh, sort of types of, of bone turnover markers. There's yeah. markers of bone formation, so these would be the builders, uh, the, builders <laughs> the construction crew, <laughs> yeah. the osteoblasts. Uh-huh. So we would say that the higher these levels, yep. the more action of the osteoblasts, mm-hmm. we assume there are. Mm-hmm. And then we have markers of bone resorption. So these mm-hmm. would be, the lower they are, the more that the resorption is being inhibited. Okay, um, And so... You know, I think one way that these have been proposed as being used Mm -hmm. um, and and one way that a lot of people do use them and I use them from time to time Mm -hmm. is if you're putting a patient on a therapy that you want the therapy to decrease bone resorption, right, to calm down the demolition crew. So you would measure their level before you start the treatment and then you'd measure the level Mm. sometime after you start treatment and you'd want to see is this medication getting into the patient's body effectively because with some some of these medications um, that treat osteoporosis absorption uh, mm-hmm. from the gastrointestinal tract mm-hmm. is a big problem. And so uh, you want to see, is, is the medication actually getting into the patient's body and
1: doing what we want it to do? Is this going to be used in junction combined with that DEXA?
2: Or absolutely, it is I, combined I, with the DEXA. I, cur- right? Currently, okay. um, all guidelines and, and most mm-hmm. you know kind of recommendations out there would be that the DEXA is something you're going to get in everybody. And again, it's it's an imperfect tool, but mm-hmm. I think it, it's probably the best that we have for right now. Mm-hmm. The bone turnover markers would be something you might do in addition to the bone density
1: gotcha. test. wow, dude! I hope everyone out there became a lot smarter. That was the, <laughs> that was the strongest beginning for osteoporosis. So. This is the patient comes to see you if they're lucky enough. You're, you're quite busy. You know what I mean? Uh, so here are some questions I want them to ask you or any of your doctors or healthcare providers that have, that now you have osteoporosis. Are there ways to keep my osteoporosis from getting worse? Uh, absolutely so uh,
2: I patients ask me that all the time and it's part of what I counsel patients on all the time so the first things to think about would be uh, what are the things that that anyone can do and d- doesn't involve any medication no medication right? um, yeah so usually what I tell patients is um, we want to make sure number one that they're getting enough calcium okay calcium is sort of the raw uh, material the raw building block that we do that we that our bones use for regular maintenance mm-hmm. um, what I usually tell patients yeah. is to aim for approximately 1,200 milligrams or 1,200 milligrams of elemental calcium okay. um, in total per day. So when I say in total, I'm talking about calcium you get from foods you eat, calcium you get from beverages you drink and calcium you get from supplements that you take. So that does not mean you have to take 1,200 milligrams of calcium supplement. Um, it means that all of it added together should add up to about 1,200 milligrams. We don't want people coming in too far below this, but we also don't need or want people to go uh, significantly above that either they in, in, in the past people have tried to say well if I just shove enough calcium into this person then maybe it's going to help their bones and we know that there um, there can be detriment that comes
1: along with taking too much calcium so as let well let me ask you this I'm just making this up as I go along yeah? I don't you know when you give supplemental calcium and many people are on supplemental sure, calcium sure. I don't usually go around ordering a follow-up basic metabolic panel to see what their calcium is do you do that because it's not easy to overdose on calcium unless you're just kind of
0: a moron
1: right yeah, correct <laughs> uh, well at least unless you're given bad
2: guidance I guess but um or you're just trying to turn into a so piece you don't want turn into a piece of chalk or something yeah, but, exactly. um, but but no uh, blood calcium levels don't correlate very well with calcium intake, unless people are on one extreme end of the spectrum or the other. Um, Our body is very, very good at maintaining our calcium levels in the normal range most of the time, regardless of how much calcium we're getting. But if someone has a a slight or a more moderate deficiency of calcium in their body, um, their intake, then the assumption is that basically their body is stealing or leaching calcium from the bones to prop up the calcium in the blood. So calcium levels in the
1: blood are not a good indicator of calcium intake. And you can also look at it this way. If you're affecting the calcium levels in the blood, then you're screwed. Sure. Because you already are beyond the range of auto-regulation. So by that time, you're either really deficient or have too much in you. Right. I love the C. That was a great question. It Uh, was a great question. Yeah. I don't know how that came from, you know, (laughs) but, uh, What about you know, I'm going to ask it vitamin D, vitamin D. So I
2: also recommend making sure patients get an adequate amount of vitamin D. Now with vitamin D, it's a little trickier in terms of the right amount. What I usually advise my patients is I think we should get a vitamin D level checked. Um, if your vitamin D level is at goal, which different people use different goals, I use a vitamin D uh, level or a vitamin D goal of 30 to 50. Um, if my patient is already at goal between 30 to 50, then I say, whatever you're doing now, whether that's no supplementation or a little bit of supplementation, if whatever amount you're taking now is fine, stick with it. Mm -hmm. If their level is too low, I tell them you either need to start a vitamin D supplement if you're not taking one or you need to increase your dose if you're already taking one. If their level is over 50, if it's only a little bit over 50, I might just kind of leave them on it. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're getting up into the the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, that is definitely a level that, that I think we don't really see any increased benefit. And there might be a slight increased risk of kidney stones. Mm-hmm. And so I'll usually advise my patients to actually ratchet down their vitamin D supplementation a little bit.
1: So let me ask you, you know, for the dosing, mm-hmm. you know, I'll take what I take. Everyone, I take vitamin D. My vitamin D level was low. You okay. Yep. Dr. Raj, if you haven't met me, I'm a little brown in color. So mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the sun, you right. know, so yep. maybe, maybe that's the reason. Sure, sure. Know? But I take 2,000 units. Mm -hmm. daily. So if you, if you're a woman or this or that, do you plot a calculator to get the exact dosing or you just do 2000 across the board?
2: I usually, if if somebody is not taking a supplement to start with, Mm -hmm. I think 2000 units is a good starting point because I've seen patients who are taking less than that, who are not reaching their goals, who are still too low and Mm -hmm. I've had to increase them. I haven't seen too many people who have been on 2000 units a day and who need to be on higher doses than that with the exception of patients who have known uh malabsorption issues so intestinal issues uh, they don't absorb you know maybe several different uh uh, nutrients or minerals Mm -hmm. uh, vitamins things like that they might need significantly higher doses but for your your sort of standard patient who who doesn't seem to have a major malabsorption issue or Mm -hmm. something like that um i haven't seen too many patients who need more than 2000 units a day That's
1: good and Lately, have you been finding a lot of patients to ask you about these supposed benefits of vitamin D? Because vitamin D is hot, right? Especially during the COVID time. You know how I'm I'm your favorite pulmonary critical care doctor. Of course, yeah. There was a time where, hey, if you don't want COVID, you better get your vitamin D going. Or, hey, if you don't want to have Alzheimer's, you need vitamin D, you a heart attack. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a nice guy. Do you just kind of nod your head like, yeah, you're right, buddy. Or (laughs) what do you think about all this hoopla about vitamin D? I
2: think that you know, uh, we, we probably are giving vitamin D in some respects, maybe a little more credit than it deserves. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there's a lot of harm to come from it as long sure. as people aren't taking really super high, excessively high doses. Um, you know, as far as the, the, the COVID stuff and the immunologic benefits, yep. I would probably defer to, you know, someone uh, with, with more knowledge in that field. But again, I can't really think of a reason why it would be a bad thing. Um, uh, there was uh, you know, a recent large study in, uh, in an older population where they just sort of, uh, without measuring baseline vitamin D levels, yeah. they put a large group of people on, uh, either 2000 units of vitamin D or, or placebo and followed them mainly for, for skeletal outcomes, you know, osteoporosis and fractures. But we're looking at a wide variety of different outcomes and they basically saw no difference. So, I can imagine. um, so, you know, I, I think vitamin D is, uh, we might give it more credit than it deserves. Do I tell my patients that, especially my patients with osteoporosis, that I want them to get enough of it? Absolutely. Um, but but do I think it is the uh, the cure of all uh,
1: of all maladies? You know, probably not. <laughs> so let's let's go back to uh, the DEXA scan, the bone density. This patient who's seeing you has osteoporosis. I'm sure they're going to ask you, how frequently do I need this DEXA scan? What what is the rough ballpark answer?
2: There's there's not a lot of evidence to say that getting bone density testing more frequently than once every two years or oh, once okay. every other year okay. probably is is makes a huge difference. Okay. Um, and so the the analogy I use here is uh, bone density tends to change relatively slowly compared to the margin of error or the the uh, precision of a bone density test, right? Of mm-hmm. these bone density machines. So if you imagine you know you're you're taking a picture with a camera that doesn't focus perfectly, right? You know, it, you can get a pretty good picture, but it's a little fuzzy around the edges, yeah. right? And so if you're trying to track a glacier that's melting, right, and you have a camera that's kind of fuzzy, if you take pictures too frequently, it's gonna look like nothing's changing, right? It's gonna look like nothing's nice happening. Analogy. Right? Um analogy. But, um, so ah. that's why it's actually, you know, and some of my patients, they say, I don't understand, why are we waiting so long? Why don't we do it more frequently? I yeah. feel like I should be getting these things every six months. And it can actually be a little misleading if you're getting them so frequently, especially if you're only comparing to the most recent test, you know, right before, which is generally what we're doing. then it looks like nothing is changing, right? Yeah. Um, now, there are uh, definitely recommendations out there to say that maybe after starting certain treatments, you might consider getting a bone density test after 12 or 18 months mm-hmm. to to ensure that the treatment is is being absorbed and mm-hmm. is and is doing what we want it to do. This mm-hmm. is probably most specifically with oral bisphosphonates, that sure. you don't want to have a patient on an oral bisphosphonate for maybe too long uh, and, and have the oral bisphosphonate not, 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 not on work you. that yeah. whole time. So there are some people who might recommend that. Um, I still tend to stick with once every two year DEXAs, um, especially for patients that are not taking oral bisphosphonates. I really don't see uh, a rationale
1: for getting it more frequently than every two years. Here's what I think is to be practical for a lot of people. When you get the DEXA, I know that my wife likes to do this. You know, she tells her patients to try to go to the same place, you know, when you get the DEXA, because there's little things in the way it's done and how it's done and how you read it. They make a difference. Do you, do you feel the same way? Absolutely.
2: Um, and again, this is a a shortcoming of, mm-hmm. of Dexa as a as a tool mm-hmm. um, is that uh, we've got lots of different types of Dexa machines out there mm-hmm. that are made by different companies and different manufacturers, mm-hmm. and the results that you get from these different types of manufacturers can can be very different. And uh, and we've even seen that, like I said, this is a very imprecise kind of a tool, and you can even get very different results based on the technician who's running the machine, right? Yeah. Um, And, uh, and from machine to machine. So even within manufacturers, even if you, you use, Oh, this machine is the same manufacturer at this facility as at that facility, even those, uh, those, those machines and and the technicians that run those machines might get very different results based on how they position the leg, getting your, your hip measurement, Mm -hmm. how they position the spine, getting your spine measurement. So if possible, yes, you ideally want patients to go to the the same facility, uh, get it on the same machine. Obviously, this is out of the patient's control, but or, getting this the, or the insurance controls yeah, make <laughs> Sure, right, right. Um, but so, yes, if possible, you mm. want to do that. But, you know, obviously, if a patient moves it moves to a different place or, it is or it if is. the facility
1: shuts down, then there's only so much you can do. And before we go on to drugs, I'm, I'm really pounding home a lot about the, you know, the, the diagnosis and the DEXA. So sometimes as doctors and healthcare providers, we'll say things and patients will just accept what we say, like a T-score. Sure. You know what I mean? And I know that, how do you know, what do we look at when we're at one of these DEXA scans is like a T-score. So I found out what my wife was referring to, what she wanted me to ask you, is the percent bone loss. Mm. Like that's another value you can get. So mm-hmm. my question mm-hmm. to you and to the audience is, uh, what are we looking at? when we look at these bone density things. Mm-hmm. And I know that the most common thing in many magazines and articles is T-score. and mm-hmm. Is that what we're looking at? What are we looking at? And what do you think about this percent bone loss? You know what I mean? Since that's my wife's favorite. Yeah, yeah, you know? great question. Yeah. So
2: the, the T-score is what, what you would use to Make your initial diagnosis. Okay. Right. So when a person gets their first bone density test, um, you're going to look at the T-score to sort of gauge where do they fall. Are they yeah. in a? If I'm going based purely on their bone density, do they yeah. fall in a low risk category, a medium risk category, or a high risk category? Okay. Which we might call quote-unquote, normal bone density, yeah. osteopenia, osteoporosis. Yep. Okay. These are the terms that that basically are low, medium, high risk. Right? Okay. So that's where your T-score comes in when you look at that first bone density test. Mm-hmm. Now, on that first bone density test, if they already fall into the high-risk osteoporosis category, when you go forward from there, the, the T-scores may not matter as much. Now, what you're really going to care about is how is their bone density changing from time to time, uh, right? If you're going to, especially if you're starting them on treatment, which hopefully, you know, most, if not all, patients mm-hmm. with uh, osteoporosis are going to be on uh, on treatment. Um, so what you care about is what is the percent change of the bone mineral density, the BMD, yeah. Yeah. because that's going to help you decide whether the treatment that you're administering
1: is effective or not, right? Interesting. Um, so are we, you know, you've taken my board review course. Many of the questions that we do in all our little question banks give you a T-score, you get a Mm -hmm. therapy, then they give you the follow-up T-score. So is that not as clinically accurate when we're doing T-score to T-score? It should be T-score mainly at 0.0 for Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Super helpful. What category are you in? But follow-up, maybe they should be referring to more of this percent bone loss. Correct. So
2: I, I guess if you saw that the t-score went up at every location then you could assume or that went up or stayed yeah. the same yeah. then without knowing what the exact bone mineral density measurements are you could say oh okay well the bone density didn't go down right yeah. it either stayed the same or it went up right yeah but otherwise if any of the t-scores go go down that is not telling you really to what extent the bone density went down, you would need to know the raw BMD, bone mineral density measurements uh-huh. for both, so that you can calculate a percentage change. Yeah. Um, without getting too deep into it, as you know, T-scores are a measurement of standard deviations. They're yeah. a statistical measurement, and it doesn't make sense to talk about a
1: percent change of a standard deviation. Yeah. That's, not a, that's not a meaningful measure. I think, you know, a lot of meds who <laughs> started of taking notes right now. And this is a great time that we're talking about this because it is confusing. And that is a really nice thing. And so I'm going to give kudos to my wife. She was spot on about that. You know,
0: thanks for listening. This has been a production of ours. Longa media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Bright. Again, our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.